Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back everyone, my name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host Simon. And this week we are discussing the George Orwell essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray. But before we start off, Simon, how have you been? Very well, thank you. We just had Toad in the Hole, first time I've ever cooked it. It was good, wasn't it? Yes, I think we've been planning to have Toad in the Hole since we uh, read the essay, Some Thoughts on the Common Toad, which ironically... (laughs) By the way, there's been a lot of weird serendipity with this podcast, um... So, did you notice what the previous essay to this one is in the Everyman volume? Common Toad. Common Toad. And just by coincidence, we've had Toad in the Hole today. Yeah. Oh, it was lovely, wasn't it? And we're drinking some nice Irish ale. I've never had this one before. I've only ever seen it in Japan. O'Hara's Irish Red. If they'd like to sponsor us, we're open to some of that lovely Celtic Tiger money. We'll do anything. Naked calendar, you name it. Send us a crate. With a, a tastefully, uh, carefully placed copy of the, the essays of George Orwell <laughs> in the right place. Oh, imagine a naked calendar of us, an Orwellian <laughs> naked calendar, for people who, who want to forget time. <laughs> <laughs> so Bend that space and time, Einstein, <laughs> when you, you and me naked on a calendar. This week we're talking about the George Orwell essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray. This was published in the Tribune, George Orwell's regular magazine, um, on the 26th of April 1946. Simon, did you like this essay? Lewis, I liked this essay. It was good. So you sent me the title, it was your choice, Vicar of of Bray, I thought... Oh God, we're going to have to talk about religion and, and all that kind of thing. Was oh, I was an atheist? Was he or was he not? And when I read it, oh, it's great. And it's very familiar to other essays we've covered with regards to the theme of it, isn't it? Yes, and it really only has a passing connection with religion. Do you think before we start, we should explain what the Vicar of Bray means? Yeah, do you want to do that or shall I? Um, shall I? Yeah, go for it. So, there is a a comic song in the English folk song canon called The Vicar of Bray. And it's all. Which we're going to try and play at the end of the podcast. Yes, yes, we'll we'll see if we can stick it in at the end of the podcast. Um, But but first, we'll uh, play the song. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Um, So. Irish ale's kicking in. um, Yes, so this song called The Vicar of Bray. We, by the way, we promise we aren't 13. That's <laughs> something we're forever funny. Sadly, not physically, anyway. <laughs> um, the folk song The Vicar of Bray is from the 17th century, and I'm sure most of our listeners won't really be familiar with 17th century English history, but it was a time of turmoil where every time a new king or queen came along, politics changed, religion changed, and you had to switch sides or, you know, go into hiding if you didn't want to get in trouble. And the Vicar of Bray was a vicar, or a priest, an Anglican priest, in rural Berkshire, who switched sides a lot, didn't he, Simon? Yeah. He was 
a political opportunist. Sound familiar? <laughs> In today's day and age. We'll come on to that later, but can I... Two words that, that stuck out for me from the essay, which I absolutely loved. Ray was into political quislingism. Did you know what that meant before you read this essay? Quisling was the name of a collaborator, wasn't it, Simon? A quisling. Do you know where it comes from, quisling? It comes from the. It comes from a village near Frankfurt called Quislingamma where people there were notoriously um, unfaithful to their wives and it became a verb in German to quishling was to cheat on your wife and they were forever quishlinging in that village and it got to a stage where in the school register they didn't know which surname to read out because it could have been anybody in the village. Are you sure about that Simon? No. How much money would you bet on all of that being a lie? No money at all, because I know what the etymology of Quisling is. It was the Norwegian collaborator who collaborated with the German occupiers during the war. Yes. <laughs> so anyway... Oh, the... by the way, there's a good movie about that on Netflix. Is there? Yeah, it's called, I think it's called Occupation. Not many movies about the uh, occupation of, oil, of Norway, are there? There's a few, actually. The Eagle Has Landed, three. that's a good one. There was a good BBC series about the um, heavy water plant that the Germans were building there and how we had to sabotage it. Is we, that the one they made the Eagle is Landed about? It might be, but there was a more realistic BBC drama done on it. Um, I recommend it if anyone listens. Anyway, the Vicar of Bray, he kept... Was not in that operation. He wasn't. Uh, he'd been dead for a while by then. The Vicar of Bray kept changing his political and religious allegiance. But can I butt in? Mm. Who was he? Well, this is the interesting thing, because I think there is some debate over whether yeah. the Vicar of Bray was a real person or yeah. not. Or, in a very Orwellian sense, as we've discovered from his essays, a metaphor for something. Exactly. We, we, I think we've both come to the conclusion that a lot of these events Orwell describes are actually metaphors for his beliefs or a series of things that happened to him and that might be what the Vicar of Bray was. And let's also remember when Orwell was writing there was no internet so it was a bit harder to look up the parish registers of Bray and find out if there was a real Vicar of Bray who kept changing his political and religious allegiance. But in Orwell's day people probably actually did look at parish registers. <laughs> so anyway Vicar of Bray a historical figure who changed sides a lot when it came to religion and politics. Like a, like somebody who is pro-European and sees a way to become prime minister of one of the richest nations on the earth by pretending to be anti-European. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, just, just off the top of my head. That could Hypothetically. Happen. Hypothetically, that could happen. But this essay is a good word for the Vicar of Bray. So why would Orwell have a good word for the Vicar of Bray? Simon? Well, what did Bray do that he approved of? What sparked his imagination to writing this essay? Well, if I can quote Orwell here, in the churchyard there stands a magnificent yew tree, which, according to a notice at its foot, was planted by no less a person than the vicar of Bray himself. And I think this is the crux of the essay here. Mm -hmm. And it struck me at the time as curious that such a man should have left such a relic behind him. And then later on he goes on to say that uh, 
even though the Vicar of Bray was not an admirable man, he left this beautiful tree which has rested the eyes of generation after generation, and as such he did good. So he says that Bray left two positive legacies. One was this yew tree, and what was the other positive legacy? The comic song, which the you will hear song, at the end of this podcast. Yeah, which has been sung over and over 300 years. So yeah, he's um, seen this yew tree, and he planted by somebody who is very much not a positive character in history, and he's and it's got his imagination going, hasn't it, about how you can erase bad deeds by doing something good. I think, Simon, that you can sum this essay up by two particular quotes. We'll go on, get on to the second quote later. The first quote is, page 1048, Sometimes the actions of the unjust make quite a good showing after the appropriate lapse of time. What did you make of that? Time heals all wounds. I think this opens up a very good philosophical question, Lewis. Is in the current hard toil, hard, you know, hardship and anguish worth it for future prosperity? Can I give you some examples? Like when I went to India, I visited the Taj Mahal and I read about how many people died in building it. Same with the, the, the uh, Giza pyramids. Thousands upon thousands of people died building those in slaverous conditions. But was it worth it for the next 5,000 years of awe and wonder that it's created for the world? Well, that's a very good point. I do think you're approaching this in a slightly different way from me, because as we'll get on to later, I think this essay is much more about not things that can be built and that come from the world of humankind, yeah. but things that can be grown and come from nature. So, uh, But from a philosophical standpoint, just looking at it without thinking about material life, can you redeem yourself philosophically by doing something good to erase something bad? Well, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of, you know, you and I have started to see over the past few months that every Orwell essay connects to every other essay in one way or another. Didn't this put you in mind you of, sorry, didn't this put you in mind of um, his, what he wrote even in the Mein Kampf essay about the idea that humanity needs this sense of struggle working towards something greater than yourself? And also in the common toad, when you see that ugly part of London, but something good can come from it when you see the bird flying overhead, resting in the one tree left on the street. Good things coming from evil circumstances. And when was this written? Well, it was published in 1946, right after the Second World so War. So it would have been written almost within, in the, probably in the closing days of the Second World War, or straight after the victory, and from the ashes of horror... We have to try and build something positive. He mentions how during the war so many trees have been cut down or destroyed in bombing, doesn't he? Yes, I'd love to quote it if I may. It's yeah. uh, later on when he talks about the importance of planting trees. He writes, um, if you plant a tree, you can do something to remedy the appalling massacre of trees, especially oaks, ashes, elms and beeches. 
which has happened during the war years. And that's something which really speaks to British history as well, because, I mean, I know you're very into history, Simon. You're probably familiar with how England, in particular, was once covered by forests of yeah. oak trees, beautiful oaks, Primeval elms. Forest. Um, and what happened to them? They were all cut down to build the galleons and the ships of the line that uh, built the British Empire. True, but also because of agriculture and having to to plough the land. But yeah, Britain was once absolutely covered in forest. And now if there's any forest over a couple of acres, it's, it's nationally protected in the National Trust. Or it's cut down for HS2. <laughs> What's the best forest you've ever been to? Anywhere. Oh, there's a really lovely wood, um, which is, it's not known. No one knows it. And I just, I, when I was a, a young man, Christ, I'm 30. I'm not even 30 yet. But, Jesus <laughs> um, <laughs> When I was a teenager, I used to go on long, aimless walks through the countryside. And one day, quite by chance, I came across this wood that I'd never been in before. And it was like something out of a, a story. It was like something out of a poem by Rudyard Kipling. I love. Did you eat porridge for breakfast? <laughs> How about you? Um, I would say the best woodlands I've ever been to is probably in Alaska or the Yukon, like the tundra, just endless spruce trees. I used to love it. And I was camp. I often camped in them. Um, but. Close to my heart, near where I grew up in Lincolnshire, there's a forest called uh, Twyford Wood. And it, there was a, an old World War II airstrip in the middle of it. And it was amazing. So this would have been like the mid-80s when I used to go there. And my dad would take us around, teach us how to build shelters using like the materials from the forest. And we would find little nests with eggs in. And in, in the mid-80s, there was still a lot of stuff left over on the old airstrip from the Second World War. That's fascinating. Apparently now it's being developed. Oh, God, yeah, that's The awful. airstrip is now being made into flats. Inevitable, sadly, mm. in a small island like Britain. But I have to say as well, um, I grew up next to some woods. My mum and dad's house back on to this day to some woods. So woods have always been very close to my heart. Yeah, um... Getting wood has always ruled my heart. If, if I may, can I bring up a point, which is, um, this is my opinion, and it'd be interesting to see if you agree with me or disagree with me. And anyone listening, if you disagree, let me know. Please write in, orwellpod at gmail.com. I picked up on, there was a lot of allegorical writing in this essay about how, sorry, about how small investments can grow into something useful. And I say allegorical because I feel that he's trying to appeal to the, this capitalist society he lives in, who's reading this essay and the capitalist nature of British society by making this allegorical point. You invest in something within capitalism, it can grow into something bigger. It's the basis of capitalism. You plant a seed, it can become a tree. I, I found that he might have been deliberately doing that to relate to the reader. So what do you think about that? I think so, very much. Uh, we've got this brilliant bit about how he, he's talking about his uh, job lot of uh, plants that he bought from a garden. Well, actually, not a garden centre, but the... Woolworths. The, the precursor to a garden centre, Woolworths before the well, war. Precursor to all sorts of things. 
I used to buy pick and mix of Woolworths. So um, he then writes that so he wrote about this in one of his columns, and then someone wrote in saying roses are bourgeois. Yeah. Sod off. <laughs> roses are lovely. Um, and uh, yes, you're you're quite right, Simon. I think. Orwell is taking the language of capitalism and the language of commodification and he's changing it round and saying that not everything should be commodified or uh, if you look at a rose as a commodity, don't look at it as something that will return an investment in terms of money, but it will return an investment in terms of happiness. Social capital. Yes. As opposed to economic. Very much in the theme of the Common Toad essay. Now, the next quote I want to read you, which is something that really struck home to me, is something I often think about. He said, um, if you plant a walnut, you are planting it for your grandchildren. And who, who cares, cares a, a damn, damn for his, his grandchildren? grandchildren? It's such a bloody good point, isn't it? So, Lewis, how can we remedy this need for instant rewards that we're suffering from in today's society? I mean, look at climate action. Why aren't we acting, acting upon the climate crisis? Because it's not going to affect us really in our lifetime, is it? No, many of us think. Bugger the grandchildren. Exactly. <laughs> Who cares about the grandchildren? Um, yes, you're quite right because there is this sense that um, you know I'm not going to be around. It's not going to affect me. I have to say though, I always took this "Who cares a damn for his grandchildren" in a slightly different way. I always thought it was Orwell saying. You shouldn't do this just because you, you're thinking of future generations, but you should do this just because it's a pleasant thing to do and it'll make you feel better as a person. Um, I think this is a good point to make that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be someone who has children to do something that benefits the planet. Um, just because you ha don't have children doesn't mean you don't care about the planet. I always, when I think about my place in this big scheme of life, I always see myself as a custodian. I'm just passing through on my journey on earth, in, in my society, in my family. I'm a custodian and I want to pick it up. And then when I put it down at the end of my life, I want it to be in a better state than when I picked it up. Does that make sense? Exactly. And I, and I wish that was how society was more or less run. But you don't, as I said, you don't have to be someone who's thinking about, you know, your own children or your own grandchildren, do you? Mm. You just need to think, you know, I'm part of something bigger than myself. You know, just because you have blood ties or you don't have blood ties with people who are going to inherit this. In a way, that's by the by, you know, you're part of a bigger framework, whether you have children or grandchildren or not. Well, neither of us have children. And you're 30, I'm As far as we older. know. <laughs> so, Sorry, I just, that, that joke is in there for my dad. That's one, of our, <laughs> that's one of our catchphrases, as far as we know. So, um, officially, neither of us have children. But we, we do this podcast to, mostly to reach out to perhaps younger people, to get them to start thinking about the world they're in and not just looking at their phone. So... We're acting upon our custodianship rather than not just because we have children, because we care. Yes, and that's what I took from that quote, who gives a damn about his grandchildren. So, or, uh, so Simon, Orwell, proto-environmentalist? 
Would he be voting Green if he was alive now? He would, I think, wouldn't he? I don't think he would be a member of Greenpeace because I don't think he would agree with taking extreme actions to to remedy a, a problem. He would be about small actions. Small actions. Personal actions. He'd be on radio, on TV, encouraging us all to, or on Instagram, encouraging us all to have an allotment, to get out into the forest, to plant a tree. I think he would be an environmentalist. That was the thing. When, when you mentioned planting a tree, it really makes me think of this other thing. So Orwell, proto-environmentalist, and also Orwell, originator of carbon offsetting. This quote towards the end of the essay, um, still, it might not be a bad idea every time you commit an antisocial act to make a note of it in your diary and then, at the appropriate season, push an acorn into the ground. Didn't that just make you think, did Orwell invent the idea of, you know, planting a tree to offset the flight you've taken? Yeah, that's a very good point. Although nowadays we see it as a very metaphysical thing, but I think he's speaking a bit more spiritually, isn't he, in this essay? So he was a spiritual carbon offsetter. The quote you just read is a good quote, but can I continue it on into the next sentence? So as you just said, so push an acorn into the ground. And even if one in 20 of them came to maturity, you might do quite a lot of harm in your lifetime and still, like the Vicar of Bray, end up as a public benefactor after all. Where did he spend his formative adult years after school? In Burma. What's the religion of Burma? Buddhist. Has it had an effect on him? That's a very good point. What's your thinking there? I think it has. It might not have consciously affected him, but the culture of Burma obviously had a big effect on him. And this whole Buddhist concept of karma, I reckon, has really entered his subconscious thinking. Listeners may remember in the very, I think the very first or second episode of our podcast series, we mentioned how Orwell had knuckle tattoos and that that was a legacy of his time in Burma. I think. To understand Orwell, you really need to look back to his time in Burma. And another thing about Orwell's life in Burma, if you read memoirs of people who knew him when he was out there, he apparently he could speak Burmese very well. And some of his associates in Burma remembered that he could speak in very high-flown Burmese with Buddhist priests in the kind of language that the Buddhist priests of Burma spoke. And I wonder how, you know, whether Orwell might have had some deep conversations about Buddhism with those Buddhist priests. Are you aware of any overt mention of Buddhism in any of his essays? I'm not, and I'm quite a fan, as listeners can tell. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you think perhaps he's deliberately not mentioning Buddhism? for fear of it dominating his more ideological aspects, him not wanting to come across as being very quasi-religious. Yet he's introducing Buddhist themes to us subtly. Well, Orwell is certainly, we've talked before about his asceticism mm. and his kind of, a lot of commentators always say that Orwell is kind of almost like a hermit in his 
attitude, you know, living close to nature, growing his own fruit and veg, trying to live out of society without luxuries, going to Jura, living this really hard yeah. life. Speaking of hermits, I, I hear that you've grown crabs. Only... <laughs> Is that your contribution to nature? So, Simon, I know that when we talk about George Orwell essays, you like to bring it to bear on what's going on in the world now, and our listeners often like that too. This is the George Orwell essay which I think we can bring to bear on cancel culture. What do you think, if anything, this essay has to say about cancel culture? I'm thinking in particular of the the point that he makes, which is you don't have to be a good person to do good acts. The Vicar of Bray in today's society and council culture would never have had the opportunity to plant the tree. He would have been ostracised, cast aside immediately after his first controversial comment or act. Or he wouldn't have had that plaque put up under the tree to yeah. say... And, and because of that, we would never have had that beautiful tree which contributed to the planet in the, the churchyard, which generation upon generation afterwards was able to appreciate and read this fascinating story and listen to this fascinating song that was written about him. Today he would just be cast aside, forgotten, erased from all record books. And any mention of him would have been a disgraceful, a simple act of misappropriation. That's not to excuse acts of misappropriation, because some are inexcusable, but many aren't. Yes. I do feel that Orwell is saying in this essay that these acts, you know, pushing an acorn into the ground, uh, planting a tree. Um, he mentions this woman, uh, Mrs. Overall, who inspired... Tell me about her. Do you know about her? I don't know about her, actually. I've only ever heard about her in this essay. He mentions this woman, Mrs. Overall, who was, uh, you know, she had fun in her day. Um, and... Uh, and we all. Uh, well. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, you must tell me what it's like sometime. Um, and uh, so she had, she had fun in her day. And as Orwell points out, she must have caused a lot of consternation and misery. But all she has left behind is this beautiful poem. And I think Orwell is making the point that these acts, you know, pushing an acorn into the ground, being the inspiration behind a beautiful work of literature, they don't make you a good person. But in a way, they help kind of redress the balance. And I see that this is, I, I see that this is how you started thinking about Buddhism because of this idea of balance and uh, debit and credit from the universe. Well, speaking of Buddhism, what's the other example he gives from Burma, the the king Thibor of Thibor, Thibor yeah. and he decapitated all of his um, brothers, brothers who were obviously. Uh, threats to his throne but to rep but to make up for decapitating most of his family what did he do he as orwell writes planted the dusty streets of mandalay with tamarind trees which were wonderful and with a wonderful aroma a beautiful sight until who came along and ruined them all until the japanese incendiary bombs burned them down in 1942 
We've got a lot of <laughs> listeners in Japan, so we've got yeah. to tread carefully here. <laughs> so that was another good example in, in Burma, the, the land of Buddhism, one of the lands of Buddhism. But I have a very paradoxical view on cancel culture. Immediately when I think of it, I f I'm quite against it because I do believe we all make mistakes and we should all be given a chance to atone for those mistakes we make. And often the atonement can by far outweigh the original error, depending on the error, of course. But then the other side of me, when I've studied history and movements throughout history, they always set upon as extremist movements. The suffragettes were seen as terrorists. But what did they do? They brought feminism and the liberation of women into the public eye. And now we see that as something that's absolutely logical and necessary. And I do wonder if the rather extremist nature of council culture now is just paving the way for something that's going to be necessary for how our society is evolving in the future. Yes, I think you're quite right there. Cancel culture in itself is often said to be more of a, a right-wing concept. Uh, the idea I think of it's a very left-wing concept. No, right-wing in the way that, you know, left-wing... That's perceived. Perceived that yeah. left-wing people would not say, I am taking part in cancel culture. Oh, they okay. would say, I'm taking part in social justice, something like that. It's like a fox. <laughs> Someone has literally just murdered herself with a sneeze, one of my neighbours. <laughs> cancel culture is often described as, you know, it's something that's in the eye of the beholder, and the beholder is, if they're using the word cancel culture, they're generally more right-wing. But yeah. something that bothers me a bit about this judgment of particularly the people of the past i think that a lot of people on the left these days like to feel a certain amount of superiority towards people in the past people in history we feel we're better than them we think we're smarter than them we think we're less prejudiced than them and it's not necessarily the case just because we are living later than they were living yeah doesn't mean we're better, smarter, happier, etc. In many cases, maybe they were happier than us. Maybe they were a bit more reasonable than us. And I think Orwell is a good case in point. Um, I think that... You often hear me in these podcasts talking about the notions of capital, right? And I think we're living in the age of capital now, where as individuals, people are trying to attach symbolic capital to themselves which is what I mean by that, is something by which they can be appreciated or have their place in the world. And cancel culture is another aspect of this capital. Exactly. By calling somebody out, you are attracting capital and credit to yourself and gaining positive notoriety through that. And I don't think that's healthy. It's a reactionary form of capital as opposed to a active form of capital accumulation. Can I just say one of my, the point where I thought that cancel culture needed to be addressed came when I was looking up an author I liked. And this author, he very rarely made political statements, but when he was in his 60s, he did an interview with Playboy magazine, which 
at the time it, w- it wasn't <laughs> I think you Not just you just looked at the pictures. <laughs> um at the time, um Playboy wasn't just naked ladies. It was uh, it was interviews with writers and uh, about that. and all of that. Um so he did an interview with Playboy magazine and um he said some typical old white man stuff. And I remember on Twitter What's a typical old white man stuff? <laughs> I think you like, know what I mean. I'll give you a Werther's original <laughs> if you catch that fish, little Timmy boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, on Twitter, people were discussing the things he said, and there were comments like, oh, I'm so glad you've brought my attention to this, because now I don't have to bother reading him, because I know how... you know. I know his opinions. I know they don't fit with my opinions. And um, that really bothered me. It bothered yeah. me to think that someone would avoid reading the work of a person because of something they had heard on social media. Well, Orwell has used some terminology in his essays, which now would see him cancelled and his books taken from shelves. He did things in his personal life, which would have yeah. seen that happen. And too. taken from curriculums. And how and how much is society missing out on contributions to its knowledge because of cancellation? And how much is society missing out on knowledge because people are too afraid to express what they're thinking? I'm sure a lot of very critical thinkers out there have some very opinionated things they want to say, which I believe could real, really make a difference and really get us thinking about certain aspects of society, but they're too afraid to say it because they're worried about the reaction to it. Because people won't look at it through critical eyes. They'll just say, I don't agree with that. You're out. And this is how the echo chamber is formed, and this is yeah. why we're so polarised these days. I hate it when people say, that's offensive. We should change that to... I am offended by that. Or that makes me uncomfortable. Because offence is subjective. So I don't like it when people say that's offensive. Because to many people it may not be offensive. Of course there are some there is some common ground with offence. You know, the Holocaust. Uh, racism. Racism. Um, rape. Things like that. Of course we can all agree and find common ground. To offence, but there's a there's a whole lot of grey area beyond that, to which I believe we should change the terminology to "I find that offensive." How about you? One of the things I've really wanted to do in this podcast, and I think you know, I think I'm speaking for you too, Simon. Hope you don't find that offensive. Well, let's see what you say. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I've wanted to do in this podcast is to. Um, promote the idea of nuance, because I think Orwell was all about nuance, wasn't he? Yes, I agree. And you and I have been friends for some years now. And in our discourse, in the way we talk, we think about things. There's a lot of nuance, isn't there? I should hope so. Yeah. And I hope that people that we socialise with, or people listening to this, understand the subtlety of nuance. And if they don't understand it, at least accept it. Before we finish, Simon, I want to ask you, can you think of any vicars of Bray, people who were maybe not 
admirable in their lifetime, but did things which turned out well. Right, let's get the Twitter feed going. Winston Churchill. Sure you're working. He did a lot of questionable things which have been um, brushed over. His attitude towards women, towards certain liberal aspects of culture, towards different races, towards imperialism, and things he did in his lifetime are very questionable, not just now, but also in his own time. Before he became the war leader, he was seen as a bit of a loose cannon. But because of his work during the Second World War, and subsequent, sub subsequent writings on it, and his books on history, he is now you know, mythologised. And yet, not only the Second World War, Simon, but ten years in the political wilderness saying we need to stand up to Hitler, yeah. we need to do something about Nazism. He saw that Hitler was a threat and he talked about how much of a threat Hitler was throughout his, uh, throughout the 30s when it wasn't going to do any favours for his political career. And Winston Churchill, the man who had racist daubed on his statue last year, daubed on his statue during the protests in London, uh, he stood up to fascism, and uh, I think that makes him a, a vicar of Bray candidate. Yeah. Um, for me, thinking about it environmentally, uh, which I think is one of the main points of this essay, the environment, I think you can say that a lot of the royals and members of the aristocracy were vicars of Bray, because these days in Britain, a lot of the parkland that the public can enjoy, both in cities and outside of cities, at one point belonged to aristocrats or belonged to uh, the royal family. And nowadays they are open to the public. And maybe the aristocrats didn't intend that when they were hunting there, but they preserved that natural space and now we can enjoy it because of that preservation. They didn't sell it off for housing. They didn't turn it into monocultural farmland. And now it's beautiful woods and fields and meadows that we can all enjoy. Yeah, that's a good point. So I enjoyed that, Lewis. That was a very nice discussion. Before we finish off, Simon, your favourite tree. Uh, and by the way, I'm not thinking about type. I'm thinking about one particular tree. Uh, chestnut tree. Of conkers, but instead of uh, instead of type, I mean like a oh. in a place. Oh, blimey! Um, crikey, Lewis, that's a good question. Do you want to answer first? Yes. Can I can I give two answers? Isn't that typical that I have two favourite trees? <laughs> um, so can I give a Japanese and a non-Japanese favourite Japanese yes, tree? Favourite Japanese tree. Uh, there is a beautiful tree just across from the supermarket where I bought the beer that we're drinking. Um, it's a camphor tree. And I think camphor is the kind of fragrant wood they used to make uh, sort of wardrobes and chests out of. And so there's a camphor tree right across from the supermarket near my apartment. And um, it's the most beautiful thing in the whole neighbourhood. Um, it's in this very dull neighbourhood, but it's just this beautiful, massive old tree that must be much older than all the buildings around it. Favourite Japanese tree. Favourite non-Japanese tree. 
just up the road from my, where my gran and granddad used to live, was an oak tree. Now, oak trees are generally associated with England. My grandparents were living in Scotland. This thing, Simon, it was massive. It must have been three, four hundred years old. It had shaded generations, tens of generations, I'm sure. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to go back and see it one day. It was one of the biggest trees I've ever seen. I used to play around it when I was a child. Oh. Does it seem bigger in your mind? Have you seen it as an adult? I haven't seen it in about 10 years. Because when you see it again, you might think, oh, actually that only, com only comes up to my thumb. <laughs> yeah, it's a bush. <laughs> I, oh, I really hate not being able to answer, question, answer a question, but I don't have a favourite tree. I don't want just to, I don't, I don't want to lie. Tell us your favourite type of tree. Um, chestnut tree, the conkers, because it brings back great memories from childhood. Did you play conkers as a very good at it. I used to put it in vinegar for like weeks to harden it up, polish it, <laughs> so then put the put the shoelace through it, and then go back go to school and play conkers and get knocked out in the third round. <laughs> That's our message to everyone: polish your conkers. So, thank you, Lewis. All well. That ends well.